Hi, I'm Emily Hall, and welcome to the Play Tectonics podcast. Recently, nearly 40,000 students and parents signed a petition to protest and discount a question that appeared in a New York State English Regents exam. If you're not a fan of standardized testing, you even may have signed the petition. But was their overwhelming response to sign the petition made in their own best interest based on a reading of the text? In this episode, Play Tectonics social media specialist Arthur Brill answers the question by code breaking the labyrinth of the Ermine Tolk. Hi there, folks. I want to thank Jeff and Emily for having me here today. This is my first audio podcast, and as such, I'll be approaching it in a playful manner and see what happens. So, as the school year ends, there is a steady flow of comments on social media from parents regarding the tests that their kids have had to endure. Many parents expressed their frustration that their children faced unfair questions that they had not been prepared to answer. This year, parents were concerned that a question was so unfair that they created a petition on change.org to discount Part 3 of the New York State Regents Examination for English Language Arts, ELA 11. The petition, which has been signed by nearly 40,000 people to date, focused on a question related to the short story Miss Brill by Catherine Mansfield. I am of no relation to the fictional Miss Brill, to my knowledge. I quote from the petition. Many students were baffled with the Part 3 Central Idea essay, which many students could not even determine the central idea due to the fact that the language used in the passage was from 1922. Not only was the passage outdated, but important information from the text was left out, which many found difficulty in indicating the central idea. Now, I have to admit, When I first read the reasoning for the petition, I was amused, but that amusement quickly turned to concern, as I realized the implications of what the petition was saying. Outdated? The English language is evolving so quickly that it becomes outdated at a faster and faster rate. While this is obvious in the social media era, with LOLs, BRBs, and AFKs already being supplanted with ELI-5s and ICYMIs and SMHs and TFWs, as well as ever-changing emojis, even the language of the 1920s is a large degree of evolution from the language of the 1800s. There is a very real implication that even had the students been versed in fictional styles of the early 20th century, they would still not be able to comprehend Nathaniel Hawthorne, Washington Irving, or even an episode of HBO's gritty western, Deadwood. And even if the students were well-versed in the literature of this period, then Shakespeare, it would seem, as well as Chaucer and Beowulf, would be completely out of the question. It occurred to me that what was really being addressed was code. Each of these examples, whether the more obvious examples of social media abbreviations or emojis, or the particular vocabulary and syntax styling of a specific era, are codes. And embedded within the code of vocabulary and syntax is the code of symbolism. And while it is of some service to teach a child the cipher to a specific code, it is much more powerful to teach the child how to code break. I was led down the path of thinking about this as code by a bit of bathroom reading I have. 
The book that has been stationed beside the porcelain throne for the past two months or so is a special edition of popular science magazine called The Secrets of Codes, From Hieroglyphics and Runes to DNA and Cybercrime. Sections of the publication include The Art of Concealment, Classical Codes of War, Morse Code, Navajo Code Talkers, and Tracking Animals. So, as an example of a line of code embedded in Miss Manfield's story, Miss Brill, there is mention of an ermine toque. Now, I admit, this bit of code threw me off guard at first. Perhaps my grandmother would have known what an ermine toque was. My mother might even have known. I certainly did not. I had heard the word ermine before, and I thought I knew what it meant, but I had no clue what a toque was and the way the code was introduced was embedded in its own code. Quote, And now an ermine toque and a gentleman in gray met just in front of her. End quote. Was this a person? An animal? Certainly more information was needed to break the code. The following sentence shed some light. Quote, He was tall, stiff, dignified, and she was wearing the ermine toque she'd bought when her hair was yellow, end quote. So, aha, it's a woman, a woman who was introduced by what she was wearing. The ermine toque was some sort of article of clothing or accessory. More code-breaking clues followed. Quote, now everything, her hair, her face, even her eyes, was the same color as the shabby ermine, and her hand, in its cleaned glove, lifted to dab her lips, was a tiny yellowish paw, end quote. Now, I know from the previous line of code that her hair used to be yellow. Was is an important code line here because it means her hair no longer is yellow. So what we're talking about here is an old woman and we know the toque is shabby and the color of everything is faded. Her hand is described as a yellowish paw. This is not a flattering picture of age. Her hair and face and eyes were the same color as the ermine toque. So at this point in our code, ermine could indeed be a color. Her hair was yellow, but no longer is. In any case, yellow eyes would be particularly strange in any century. It seems like her hair and eyes are gray, which makes sense. But her face? This does not sound like a healthy woman. And the yellowish paw would seem to confirm that. This is a woman, infirm with age, wearing a shabby piece of grayish apparel and yellowing gloves. The code continues, as the man she's talking to walks away. Quote, the ermine toque was alone. She smiled more brightly than ever. End quote. Now, if this had been the first instance of being introduced to the code, we might be very confused. But now we know that the ermine toque is code for the woman wearing the ermine toque, a woman who is aging poorly and is wearing shabby and yellowing clothes. And more code follows, quote, but even the band seemed to know what she was feeling and played more softly, played tenderly, and the drum beat, the brute, the brute, over and over. What would she do? What was going to happen now? But as Miss Brill wondered, the ermine toque turned, raised her hand as though she'd seen someone else much nicer, just over there, and pattered away, end quote. So the music of the band mirrors how she's feeling. The music is soft and tender with a drumbeat hammering out the cadence of the brute. 
She's angry, and perhaps sad, and yet her following actions don't seem to follow such a state of emotion. She raises her hand, as though she'd seen someone else much nicer, and pattered away. And she's smiling more brightly than ever. So even if we don't know what the code word pattered means, at least we know she left. But the as though also lets her know that she was pretending. She is angry and sad, and she is pretending that she just saw someone nice. She is pretending to be happy. And this, my dear readers, is the power of code breaking. It's not a fact. It is not a tidbit or morsel that can be taught in little nuggets of optional choice bubbles. It's a way of thinking that centers on the most essential aspect of the human mind, playfulness. It is only through being willing to play with a material, turn it over, taste it, breathe it in, and let it roll around before allowing it to overwhelm, that it can be tackled. Code breaking is what allows us to break free of something as simple as paradox. A machine would be caught in an infinite loop when presented with the following statements. What I am about to say is true. What I just said is false. Yet the human mind can break free of that loop almost instantly and find humor in it. And this ability to instantly code break or to identify bad code can't be taught in a manner that will be, quote, on a test. It is not like knowing that you will be asked the capital of every state in the United States or every major river in South America. It is about learning how to identify code when you see it and developing a playful method of code breaking. Thanks for listening to the Play Tectonics podcast. By advancing opt-in to Play Day events, parents and students are opening the learning culture by themselves, on their terms, and in the image of children. To find out more, get on our mailing list. Visit optintoplayday.org. That's O-P-T, then the letter N, the number two, P-L-A-Y-D-A-Y dot O-R-G. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. I'm Emily Hall.